This is episode 26 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're finishing up the 2007 Annual Enrichment Conference, Living in Covenant Community, Centered on the Gospel. This is session three with Rick McKinley. Well, good evening. It's good to be with you, to be back at the CBA Annual Meetings. I, uh, I had the privilege of being here for several years when I was in LaGrande with uh, Wayne and Bonnie Pickens. And it all kind of started when I married a Baptist girl and, uh, from Caldwell First Baptist. My mother and father-in-law are here, uh, Daryl and Susie Larson, so it's fun to be back with, with all of you. Um, thank you for the introduction, Luke. Luke goes to my church, so it was a little scary to think for two days. I've been thinking about what I'm going to say, and I have no idea what's coming out of your mouth. I appreciate it. I was here last night, appreciated Art, and uh, he brought it home pretty uh, gently, kind of. Um, so tonight, what I thought I'd talk about, I got seven steps to a cool church. And step number one. <laughs> Art isn't here, right? So I can do that. Tonight, what I, what I hope that, that can happen is that I would, uh, God would stir our imaginations. We, uh, it's always funny because we look at our kids as they play Xbox and iPods and instant message and live in this technological world that's just way mind-blowing for many of us. And they can do it all at the same time, right? They can listen to their... I, my son walks around with one headphone in all the time. He's plugged in all the time, and then he's on the phone, and, and you're just like, how in the world are you ever going to have an imagination? And we're so concerned with the imagination of our kids and creativity. But the truth is, one of the places where imagination lacks the most is in churches, uh, we, just, we just don't have divinely inspired imaginations anymore. Eugene Peterson has really helped to cultivate mine. And um, I love the things that he writes about. And some of us, I think, freak out. I, the first time I heard him talk about it, I was kind of freaked out. Like, my imagination, is this some new age deal? Or am I going to have an outer body thing? Or what, like, what are you talking about? But essentially, um, we use our imaginations all the time. You do all the time. You imagine uh, your sermon before you preach it, some of you. Some of you, um, some of you imagine how you would have responded to that guy on the elder board, or you imagine how you'd like to write the email back. We watch the world news, and... and our, imagine, our, our, our lives are inundated with images and, and we picture what is it like right now to drive a vehicle down a road in Baghdad? What would that be like to sit there, to know that that's coming? So we have imaginations that are created by the world. The world is constantly throwing images at us and our imaginations start to to go down that road. And then you have imaginations that are created in the church. Some of you imagine that you're going to walk in and there's going to be a whole bunch more people there next week. <laughs> and, but, but we do. We do this. And the place where we don't imagine very well is the story of God. 
And God wrote us a story. He wrote us primarily a narrative. And stories are meant to have you fill in all the blanks. They leave you tension. They leave you wanting. You don't, you're kind of like, well, what, what did he mean by that? And particularly in this modern context, we've answered all those questions, so the story is completely understandable, and it loses its color. It loses its tension. It loses its frustration at times. Jesus, as much as he is glorious, had to be extremely frustrating. The parables, like, well, why'd you tell him? Because I don't want him to understand. Exactly, totally. Like, is that, that doesn't make any sense, but I mean, he did walk on water, so let's not bring it up. And so tonight what I want us to do is, is try to cultivate an imagination, a kingdom imagination. What would it look like for us to actually have the kingdom break in through our churches, in our communities? What, is that, what could that look like? Because it doesn't look like it does now. It looks different. And if as leaders we aren't imagining that, we're not trying to create pictures, then who's going to? Who is going to call and herald our congregations to re-envision a culture where Christ is reigning in their schools and in their neighborhoods? Who's going to do that if not us? Nobody. But the media is going to try to get their imaginations going. The culture is going to get their imaginations going. The sinful nature is going to get their imaginations going. Who is going to contradict that? And how can we reimagine the story of God and preach and teach and live in such a way that they're grasping it, they're challenged by it, they're like, I'm catching this. And because for you and I, this story beats The imagination, the biblical imagination, it beats within us, but it beats slowly and quietly like a deep bass drum. And the world crashes in with cymbals and says, imagine this, and it's loud and it's noisy. And and, and the church church is frustrating. No matter what church you're in, it's always got its problems. And those cymbals are clashing. And all the while, God's saying, listen for the beat of my kingdom Reimagine what this could look like. And so tonight, I want us to do a whole bunch of things, but ultimately, I'm hoping that as we go through these passages and as we look at the kingdom of God and we look at the church, that what will happen more than anything is that your imagination will be stirred and you'll want more and you'll desire more and you'll pursue that. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. And what I want to do is, is get to Matthew chapter 16, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, but I want to start in Matthew 4. And what, what, what I want us to move towards is gaining a picture, gaining some insight. What would the world of the apostles look like? What would it have felt like? What did they touch? What did they experience? What did they see? What did they encounter? Particularly as it relates to the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, this is the temptation of Jesus where he's tested in the wilderness and it says this, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world 
and their splendor. And all this I will give to you, he said, and if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. As we move towards Matthew 16, what I want to do is just create a frame, create a context for the kingdom. Because I don't know about you, kingdom doesn't mean a lot to me. I live in a democracy, I don't have a king, right? We, we, it's, it's just not a context we're familiar with. And so to walk through that and, and, and try to get our hands and minds around it. What's interesting to me about chapter 4 and the temptation is there's all kinds of things going on there, but Satan is offering Jesus something. And he's offering him power, and he's offering him the kingdoms of the world. And it seems as though this is a legitimate offer. What, what bothers me about it is that if I was Jesus, I'd be like, you're offering me, right? I created the world, so thank you, but, but Jesus doesn't respond like that. He responds to a resist of temptation. And I, I, and I would make the argument that Satan is bringing him a legitimate offer. That the God of this age, the prince of this world, is bringing him a legitimate offer of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus' kingdom is not of this world at this point. And so when he makes the offer, it's a legitimate temptation, or it's not a temptation at all. That the kingdoms of this world are being governed by the prince of darkness, by the God of this age. And Jesus is resisting the temptation to lower himself to the weapons or to the um, motives of this age. Power. Money. Right? It's, it's not that different for us today. And so Jesus resists this temptation, and that becomes very important, because as we come to verse 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And at this point, there's this picture that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in to, to another kingdom. A foreign kingdom is now entering into Satan's realm where he reigns, where death and sin and darkness exist. And Jesus shows up and says, you need to turn around because the way that you've been living is, go is the wrong way. And my kingdom is going to look very upside down to you if you're being shaped by the prince of this world, by the culture around us. And so his first invitation is to repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's in-breaking. It's in-breaking. When we started Imago Day, um, I left LeGrand, and we had a U-Haul and a horse trailer that someone loaned us, because we don't own horses. Um, and we came to Portland, and I came to Portland because I was going to plant the cool, hip, great church and uh, God decided he would kill that vision, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and at the same time, <clears throat> I remember coming to a place of going, okay, I'm gonna, I tried that, that didn't work. And I'm, okay, we'll try this now, that's not working. Uh, nobody's coming. I remember sitting there one Sunday night, because we met on Sunday nights, during the NBA finals, and Portland's in the finals, and they're playing that night. 
And we're only about 30 people anyways. But that night I'm looking out at, you know, 15 cute girls. And we got candles. And I'm like, what happened? This is horrible. Because there's nobody here. And the girls are like, basketball what? I don't. (laughs) So I'm like, am I starting a women's Bible study? I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I was really coming to this passage and just saying, the only thing I know how to do is admit that I don't want to do it. Like, like I, I can try all the how-to stuff, but there, there isn't that much. That It's not that difficult to love your neighbor if you want to. It's funny, Art talked about this, but there isn't six easy steps. There's no, here's, what I, here's the plan, here's how to do it. You just go, one guy gets saved, he was blind, now he sees and he tells everybody about it. And Jesus shows up and all these people are like, what'd you do? You healed that guy. Because he told everybody. Nobody said, now that you have your eyesight back, there's a, there's a manual that I want you to go through. It's a six-week course. It's, it's going to help you tell people how Jesus healed you. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm busy this week. I'm not in a... There's none of these things going on. It's all desire. It's all passion. It's all want to. And we had to get really honest that the church, the reason lost people aren't being touched and the reason the church isn't growing isn't because we don't know how to do it, it's because we don't want to do it. It's not a pragmatic issue, it's a desire issue. Because it's, there's lots of needs if you look, right? Lots of people who need love if you look. But we want to live in this world of, well, if we just knew how. It's ethical humanism that's really crept into the church that says we're basically all good, aren't we? We basically all would share our faith if we wanted to, but, you know, because we, we're all good. It's like, no, I'm not good. I'm selfish. And homeless people smell. And, you know, like, I don't want to be involved. I don't want, and it's not just the homeless. It's church people bug me. And I don't want to love them. What I really want is for them to bring all their friends and grow my church and make me cool and so I can just study my Bible and preach. But we won't say that publicly, will we? Some of you do. You just you throw out the flag and just go, it's me, you got me. And so needing to come to that place of saying, I don't want to, and the only thing that can change that is not a conference at Willow Creek and not a Saddleback conference and not another book. It's getting to the throne of God and having him change my heart. And if that doesn't happen, it don't happen. Have it as big as you want. You could have these screens everywhere. I mean, you could do the big, but if you don't want to love the world then you can just fill a whole bunch of rooms full of Christians from other churches and you can pretend that you want to. It's always ironic to me that, that churches that are struggling and that are in decline often use the, the escape route that it's because we're so into Jesus and the world doesn't want Jesus. That's a lie. The world is very attracted to Jesus. If I was willing to give my life to save you, would you ignore that? Would you be like, hold on, I'm going to die for you real quick. Yeah, I don't have time. It's, it's not that the world isn't attracted to Jesus. They're not attracted to people who don't love. They're not attracted to 
people who aren't interested in leaving the walls and actually touching them. And so coming to the face to face and saying, let's quit playing church. Let's quit acting like, oh, did you read this? Did you? Let's just admit, I don't want to. And the bummer thing is, I don't want to almost every day. So it's not like I repented one night at the altar and then I just walked out and I was holy and I loved the whole world. It's like every day, why are these people driving me crazy, right? It's not something that you just get over. And so the beautiful thing about repentance is that I just, it's just a long turn on the steering wheel. We gotta start going a different direction. Like yeah, it's good that you repented, keep repenting because your flesh is going to keep showing up. So we sat there, and I invited everyone to come and repent. Which is a good way to take those 50 people and turn it into like 18. Um, and they don't really want to bring their friends to that, because that sounds weird. Like, hey, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to repent with my church. So... So we just, I, I put together every list of need I could think of, every broken thing about Portland, and just said, we're not going to pray about your aunt, and we're, we're, we're going to pray about this. And so people had to sit there and read it, and then they started praying. And the, what's beautiful about the church at that point is they're very honest. What's scary about the church is that they're very honest. And so the prayers were like, God, I hate my neighbor. That guy bugs the blank out of me. And I'm like, this was a bad idea, you know? We really need to try to take a different route on that. But we stayed there, and we, and we, and we were there pretty much every week. We just are always coming back to the union stations and going, man, God, I just need to repent because I don't want what you want. I don't love what you love. I'm not about what you're about. And so many times I just, I'm looking for a functional savior. I want to reduce you to serve me. And so God, I need to be honest about that. And until we confront, until we preach the gospel to ourselves, to the lost, and to Christians, we're not preaching the gospel. Like the gospel has to save us from thinking we've, we've got it figured out because only Jesus has it figured out. So anyways, he inaugurated in chapter four. The kingdom's inaugurated, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. They're experiencing that, he's calling the disciples, and it's an invitation that I believe is still for us today. We enter into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you know about this, it's just this incredible ethical treatment of things, and it's completely upside down. Blessed are the poor, you know, great are the meek. And if you're, if you're reading it with your glasses on, you're like, okay, like what's wrong with you? But this kingdom is not traveling the same way that the kingdom of the world, this other empire of Satan works. And so poverty is a virtue to some extent. They're blessed. God's paying attention He's not ignoring. It's not every man for himself in the kingdom of heaven. And so justice becomes a huge thing. And it's just because God is coming to people's rescue. God cares. God's merciful. 
And you get to chapter 6, verse 33, and Jesus trumps this extremely important passage where he simply says, um, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and everything will be given to you as well. So this is a kingdom imperative. It's something that you and I are supposed to seek. It's supposed to be primary. It's supposed to be right there on our radar. This is, this is what I'm seeking, Jesus. I'm, I'm looking to you, the king, and I'm looking to your kingdom to shape my reality, to shape my life. I'm looking to, the, to you and your kingdom to tell me what to do with my money, to tell me how to love my wife, to tell me how to treat my neighbor. Because if I don't, then I'm only, there's only really one other option. I'm going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to live just like everybody else. You know the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's wrong. You should be everything. Uh, You should have a totally different reality than I'm just forgiven. No, I'm living for a different empire. I'm an alien and a stranger. I'm an ambassador to the king. I'm here to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus. I am not just forgiven. Right? But we're so good at reducing. Oh, we're just forgiven. That's why I flipped you off when I turned the corner. I'm just forgiven. Right? No. Not right. We, we love scapegoats. We love the easy route. We're sort of like, well, good. Just forgiven. That's another sermon, so I'm going to move on. Chapter 9, Jesus goes about preaching. Verse 35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. 10 verse 7, Jesus sends out the twelve. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you received, freely you give. And then this passage just about the dependency of doing that. Chapter 11 talks about John and the kingdom and the greatest in the kingdom. And then in chapter 12, you have this rejection of Israel rejecting her king. It's kingdom language. And so in verse 25 through 28, they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And they reject him, and he rejects them. And we go into chapter 13, and he starts this parabolic ministry where now he's going to talk in stories and, and virtually talking and speaking in stories so that Israel doesn't get it, so that their hearts will be hardened because they have rejected their king and they've rejected his kingdom. And the reason that they rejected it is because he threatened their kingdom which was a religious empire that was working off the same rules and same principles as as the empires around them. Money, wealth, power, influence. 
same principles. And Jesus threatened that because he came in poverty, weakness, and influence. But it wasn't the kind of influence they wanted. And so he goes and he begins to speak in parables. I want us to look at the parables of chapter 13. And again, we're, just, we're trying to create a context for what, what the disciples are experiencing at this point. Because the disciples are leaving their nets. They're following this king. They're watching him do things and reverse things like death, like sickness. He's teaching with authority that's very different. And then he sends them out, and they're doing the same thing. They're like, whoa, this kingdom is real. It's showing up. People are being transformed, and things are happening. The chapter 13, and he speaks about these parables. He teaches on the, look at verse 19. When people hear the message about the kingdom and they don't understand it, the evil one comes and he snatches away what was sown in their heart. And so he's talking about the word being sown in the parable of the soils and basically saying that the, the, the word breaks in to the world in the midst of opposition. So when you preach the gospel, why do some people not hear it? Because there's another kingdom that is opposing it. It's a kingdom of opposition, and the word is finding fertile soil, and there's a kingdom that's saying, we better steal that so it doesn't grow, or else this kingdom will bear fruit in the midst of our empire. The kingdom breaks in through the word. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but everyone was sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, and the weeds also appeared, and the owners of certain said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And he said, An enemy did this. And so here's this, another picture of a kingdom in opposition. And it's already here, it's breaking in, and yet it's not yet fully here. Because the kingdom of heaven comes in all of its fullness, right? There is no opposition. When the fulfillment of the kingdom happens, there, there is no death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has gone away. Behold, he has made everything new. But right now there's wheat and there's tares and this kingdom is in opposition. It's really important that you know that because sometimes I think we, we live as though the kingdom isn't in opposition. We have our own little kingdom called the church and the rest of the world is going to hell and that's just okay. Instead of understanding that our job is to bring the kingdom into the world, to represent it, to display its reign, but to know it will be resisted. It will be resisted. And Jesus says that's really normal. It's really normal. It's funny when we think about being so frustrated as pastors. Man, my church has problems. Really? Your church has problems. Bummer. I've never heard of a church like that, but like, yeah, you're, you're a pastor, your leaders, your elders, your husbands and wives that are laboring together in a church that has had problems for 2,000 years. You're always going to have problems because the kingdom is in opposition. 
Just get used to it. Get comfortable with it. If you fix it, I think you got a cult. I don't think you got a church. Because cults are like everybody's on board in a cult, right? On board to some really scary extremes. Nobody stand up and goes, should we drink that? Or why are we all wearing, you know, like they don't, they don't do that. They just smile and nod and go, yeah, that's great. Scary smile, you know, glossy eyes. And, but, but in the church, it's got wheat and tares and it's, and he says, don't pull them up. Just wait. Just wait. The kingdom's in opposition right now. It's already here but it's not yet fully here. It's already here because you see people coming to Christ. You see marriages get healed. You see uh, poverty being uh, taken away. You see justice happen, and you bury your friend of Lou Gehrig's disease, and you miscarry a child, and your church splits, and it's not yet here. And yet in the midst of that horrible moment, there's this peace that passes all understanding. It's It's already here, but it's not yet here. Live in the tension. We hate tension as leaders. We hate tension as Christians. We hate tension in our churches. But if you remove the tension, you're going to pendulum swing one way or the other. And those are extremes that you need to avoid. It's just tense. It's tense. And Jesus is not surprised. You know, he's not going, oh my gosh, there's weeds, what? Somebody, what? Peter, everybody, quick, yank them out. We can't. He's like, yeah, that's the way it is. Just hold on. Let them grow. What? Her? That person with the mouth? Like, she's going to grow? Yeah, she's going to grow. Church disciplines are there, though, for you. Just so you got that card. Remember to play it. (laughs) Verse 31 He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed which a man took and he planted in his field and though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so big that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all its way through the dough. And so the kingdom is subversive. It's quiet. It just shows up. It's viral. It grows. We don't really get it. We don't know how. We can't measure it. We can't control it. We can't package it. And the bummer thing is we can't market it. Because if we could, right, we would be rich. And that's another kingdom that would be motivated by that. That's not this kingdom. That means you can't build it. You can't advance it. You can't even strategize and figure out how it's going to happen because you just walked in and the yeast grew and the mustard seed sprouted up and the miracle took place because it was divinely inspired to grow. It wasn't your job to grow it. Frustrating. 38. He says, we'll go to 37, the one who sowed good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seed stands for the people, the kingdom, the weeds are the people, the evil one, the enemy who sows them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, 
and the harvesters are angels. The kingdom is moving towards fulfillment. So we wait, we hope, we anticipate, we have a destiny, there's something that we're going towards, but right now, it's not yet. And yet it already is. So the kingdom is paradoxical. It's already here and it's not yet here, but it's moving towards fulfillment. And it will be fulfilled. And you need to remember that on Monday morning. Because you know Monday mornings are a bummer, right? (laughs) Even if it was a great Sunday, you're still depressed and you don't know why. So make sure not to take them off. Your wife does not need that from you. (laughs) Let the church pay for your depression on Monday morning. (laughs) And then in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. And it's just to say, uh, all of that to say, this kingdom is of great value. It is extremely worthy. It's worth everything you have. To live in tension, to live with frustration, it's worth everything. And disciples are hearing this. Disciples have lived in a Jesus kingdom-saturated experience. It's, it's this whole life that they've had and now it just broke in and he said, leave your nets and follow me and watch this and we're raising dead and we're healing the sick and demons are cast out and they're going, wow, this is significant. This is significant. Their imaginations are getting tweaked of what is possible, of what could be. Their vision for, for, for the earth, for communities, for people is getting tweaked. It's not fatal, it's not hopeless. Change is possible, transformation is real. This king actually is the king that rules over a kingdom that looks so terminal. And he breaks into that terminal kingdom with life, with new life, with new creation, with recreation, with restoration, with reconciliation, and other Asians that I can't think of at the moment. Right? This king reigns over it. And so in that moment, and you can picture the disciples, well, one of the saddest things I think about ministry in the, in the United States and evangelicalism is somehow those of us who preach the gospel and God blesses it become arrogant. And I just sit there and I think, the gospel is basically a story of why, how I killed God with my sin, and he rose again, and then he was merciful on me. And that's really good for, like, how do, we, how do you get arrogant from that story? Aren't you the bad guy in the story? Like, weren't, and then you're like, yeah, that's right, I'm preaching. So I'm picturing the disciples, and I'm picturing them humble at this experience that they've had. I'm seeing him reject Pharisees, and they're probably scared they're like, wow, all of a sudden we're on the team that the religious people, the powerful people, they don't like us. But then we have this God thing that keeps showing up and people's lives are being transformed and that's really cool. I think they're off kilter, they're disoriented a little bit, they're dependent maybe. And in that context, we come to Matthew 16. And I hope by now that your mind is spinning and that you're imaginating and 
that what the kingdom could be and that you're not just arguing with me in your head about the rapture <laughs> and when that happens. I hope, I, hope, I hope you're not doing that. And so in Matthew 16, we come to this passage in verse 16 where Jesus is speaking to Peter and Peter has just confessed that he is the Christ. And he said, verse, verse 15, what, do you, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he said, don't tell anybody. What a, yeah, just frustrating all the time. I, we read this passage and we're like, there, there's so much that we could go into, and obviously the confession of Jesus being the Christ is central. Um, Peter is obviously the apostle that shows up in chapter 2, and the Spirit comes to the Jews, shows up in chapter 8, and it comes to the Samaritans. He shows up in chapter 10 of Acts, and it comes to the Gentiles, and so he's unleashing this kingdom reality. But this is packed with kingdom kingdom language, a kingdom context, and we always think of the church separately from the kingdom, but Peter would not have thought that. In fact, he says, Peter, we're going to start a new thing. There's going to be an outpost for my kingdom, and it's going to be called the church, and I'm going to go back up to heaven, but you guys are going to get the keys to this thing, and you can bind and you can loose, which we can go all across the board. What does that mean? But we know it means something about the fact that the reality of heaven can break into earth through and in the church. So is it casting out demons? Is it, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that that could show up. Use your imagination. But for Peter, he's standing there going, whoa, I'm getting the keys to this thing? And, and, and Peter, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. Peter, not you. Like, you don't need nails, and you don't need wood, and you don't need the DVD thing, and you don't, I'll build it. Okay? Not only will I build it, but you need to know that as my kingdom breaks into this kingdom of darkness, and you're going to stand there and you're going to feel just vulnerable and naked at times because this other kingdom is coming at you, you need to know this kingdom will not prevail against you. The gates of hell will never prevail against my church. My kingdom will win. And how many of us sit there and go, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think, I don't think we're going to turn it around. I don't think I can do another year of this. Where is your imagination? I'm not talking to play. I'm not talking about playing with pixie dust and, and that kind of thing. I'm saying, where is your God-given, divinely inspired kingdom imagination to say hell doesn't win, 
And there may be a day that your church needs to have a funeral. That's not a loss. Because God births the church, and if it has babies, and if it transforms people, there is a time for every local expression to go away. But that doesn't mean the church dies. It's when we cling, when we build. I'll fix it. I'll build it. He's like, you weren't supposed to build it. I wasn't asking you to build it. It's not your church. Stop. Be the church. Be the church. Be the church. Let me build it. You live it. You preach it. You proclaim it. You imagine it. But I'll build it. I'll build it. I want to talk about what that might look like. Okay? And I got a PowerPoint, which I never use, so be careful here. It's vibrating. The gospel of the kingdom. This is my stab at it, so if you disagree, please make it better. But I'm saying that it's the good news about God's reign, which is breaking into already not yet this world through the death and resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. People think that there's this some opposition to the kingdom of God and preaching the gospel. And if that is the case, something is desperately wrong, you should be preaching the gospel because the gospel is about the king and the kingdom and the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's all wrapped up in there. And it's the resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ that's initiating a process of restoration for all creation, forming Christ in those who are the king's own new creations and culminating with all things being made new so that it will be on in that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. To me that's the gospel of the kingdom and it lifts up Jesus Christ it should exalt him but it's not just about souls getting saved it's that and that's hugely important but it's bigger than that. He's restoring everything. Okay? God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. The gospel is significantly about the personal transformation, but it is not limited to that. And, and if we can get our imaginations to expand, it's not just the four spiritual laws, and it's not just an altar call. It could have something to do with, with the way that your city is running right now with the way your schools are with the way it could have all kinds of implications it has to do with the sex trade industry it has to do with child human trafficking it has to do with sweatshops around the world it has to do with marriages that are breaking up the gospel the gospel the gospel it's transforming people and it's out of that transforming a world. I want to talk about what are these values of the kingdom that disciples may have encountered that we in our churches should be looking to. That if we're expecting the kingdom to break in, what are, what are the values that are going to get expressed? The first is biblical teaching with divine authority bears fruit on fertile soil. 
When you preach the word of God and somebody's life is changed, it's a miracle. You're not that good. Like, like God made that happen. And, and the word of God broke into hardened hearts. And it, it's growing, it's forming the person of Christ and their souls. That's a kingdom act. It's a kingdom act. It's spiritual transformation. It's seeing people that are bound up and addicted getting set free. It's seeing people who live lives of legalism being, being set free, repenting of their self-righteousness and people repenting of their self kind of fulfillment, their own personal pleasure and immorality. But, but the Spirit of God transforms that and you know who that ticks off? It ticks off Satan because he's losing his people, his kingdom's being robbed. And that's a beautiful thing. The use of money, power, and influence is for the exaltation of the king and his reign. This has huge ramifications for your businessmen in your church. What would holistic discipleship look like if I was the CEO of a company? I'm going to talk about that a little more in a minute. It's subversive, it's simplistic, and it's mysterious in its growth. It just is. It doesn't have to be big and flashy and fancy. I want to give you a couple examples. When we started the church, um, we, we, we had nothing. We didn't have money, we didn't have a building, we didn't have budgets. So how in the world are we going to do this? We had people that had repented and their hearts authentically desired to do something. And so one group of people said, well, we're going to adopt this low-income apartment complex. We're going to give a year of our life and just see what God does. And it turns out to be a rehab center for single moms. So these girls, just how can we volunteer? Well, they hold babies, and they hold babies for a year, which you're kind of like, is that the kingdom? I mean, that's just... And then after a while, they were able to create... um, events for the moms and the kids that they could take them to the zoo and take them out and then later on they had the kids babysat and they took uh, hairdressers from our church and they went in and they did the girl's hair and then after about three years they said we we'd like to go to church and we baptized tons not tons but several of them tons of them by the truckloads that came in we just dumped it in the water there we go Well, what was beautiful about that is to see how it started as this sort of mustard seed, this little piece of leaven in the dough, and it grew, and there were 20 people involved, and, and lots of people being bussed into church, and all that happened not because we came up with a great idea, but because a mustard seed showed up in this two girls' lives in our church, and they just said, let's let it grow. It didn't cost us any money. There wasn't a big program. It was very simple. And I think the best things are always simple and simplistic. They're not necessarily programs. It's, it's how can you empower your people to, let the must, to find the mustard seed and let it grow, to be subversive and simplistic and mysterious. To me, those are these values. And then as we come to Matthew 16, you see, you see Jesus saying, you guys have had all this kingdom experience. You've been with me for all these years, and now I'm going to tell you 
that I'm going to build a church of the, the called out ones. And Peter, I'm going to do it with you, and I'm going to build it, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail, and it will be an expression of things that are taking place in heaven, and they'll be reigning on earth. Which means that we've been given a kingdom identity as the church, a kingdom vocation, and a kingdom destiny. And that is a really long intro, but I'm going to get to these. Kingdom identity, if you think about the place on earth where Jesus should be able to reign uncontested would be where? Should be the church. I don't know how good that's working, but that's what we would hope, right? He's the head. We're the bride. His kingdom has to break in in the world that's being run by the devil, that's being run by the God of this age. But in the church, that's the place where Jesus reigns unopposed. That's our identity, which is really difficult at times for us to fight with Jesus and say, who's really running this church? And it's our job to do hard work in our heart to make sure that Jesus is running our life. And it's our job to have great amounts of courage to make sure that your congregation knows that they're not running the church either. Jesus is running the church. And it's an outpost for his kingdom. And some of you may preach that message and lose your job. Lose your job. Don't back down from losing your job. If, that's, if they aren't buying it, just say, good, I'm gonna go. And the candle's gonna go out pretty quick, probably. Your congregation does not run your church and you don't run your church. Jesus runs your church. And it is an outpost to express the kingdom of God. That's your identity. Don't lose that. You lose that, what do you have? You have a bunch of guys sitting around again for another year's gone by. We're gonna still sit around and we're gonna ask the question, who are we? Don't come up with a different answer than the Bible has for you. Let God tell you who you are. You are an outpost for the kingdom of God. You are pastors and leaders that shepherd the flock of God and unleash them into the city to be the hands and feet and voice of Christ. You have an identity. That's your identity. And so what is our vocation? Our vocation is to creatively imagine what the display of his kingdom values could look like in your community. I think it's great about being a pastor is that all of us, no matter what your influence is outside your church, you're called to a particular zip code in a community with a particular group of people. That's your job. And, and the challenge I think that we have, particularly in such a marketed self-help culture of church growth, is that, that if you go and you bring in somebody else's ideas of what works somewhere else, it might not work in your zip code. Because you're, you're not working with those people, right? And so it's your job not to hijack somebody else's creative ideas. It's okay to rob and steal if you can, if it works, but, but you got an imagination. Let God create ideas through you. You have a, a, an expression of the church that's unique. Think of your own kids. Like, are they, are they clones? 
Do they all do the exact same thing, like the same stuff, act the same way? So we have churches that have multiple different gifts and expressions and takes and personalities, and your job is to create your expression of the kingdom. And here are some of the areas I think you, you might want to think about. What, is, what do these kingdom's values look like in the area of personal transformation? How can people continue to be changed? How can the kingdom continue to show up in your church and through your church? We want to preach a very strong gospel. We want to see people go from death to life. And so personal transformation is at the core of what we're talking about. But what does that look like in your life? What does it look like in your churches? I think of many of these ministries that we've we've been able to kind of start at Imago, and one of the most beautiful things is when you actually see people's lives start to change. When you see addicts get off heroin, and when you see homeless people get off the streets, and when you see people who really aren't getting it all together, but they have a hope that the gospel's true for them. It's like, yeah, I'm still screwed up, but Jesus keeps loving me. Yeah, that's right. And to see people get changed, to see legalistic people be set free of their moralism, of thinking that they earned salvation, that's beautiful. So when it shows up, it shows up in the area of personal transformation. The other display is in the area of social justice. One of the saddest things is to think that if you love and serve the social issues of your community, you must be liberal theologically. What was Jesus? Was he really liberal? Right? He says, I have compassion on these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to teach them many things. I have compassion on these people. They've been with me several days. They have nothing to eat. Let's feed them. Hold those things together. You don't become emerging or postmodern or wacky because you love hurting people. Like, what a great deception of Satan. Well, I'll, I'll make them feel like they're heretical if they love people. Ooh. And then we get paralyzed. Justice needs to show up all across the board. And this isn't about you going into your community and going, what does every single need look like? It's really about going into your communities and going, what is God birthing within our people that, that meets needs in our area? What does it look like? What does justice look like in this trailer park over here? What does economic justice look like for these kids that are coming out of the detention centers and the prisons? What does justice look like at that middle school down the street? What does it look like? And you with your leaders, with your church, with the divinely inspired imagination, get to figure that out. And it is the most awesome adventure. It feels at times as though Jesus is saying, hey, and don't take a bag of money, and don't take an extra cloak, and good luck, and remember I'm with you, and heal the sick and raise the dead and do those things. And you're like, okay. Like, how in the world is this going to happen? And then the mustard seed starts sprouting, and justice shows up, And people get stoked and they're like, wow, the kingdom is real. It's breaking in. Every church in the world should be involved in social justice. 
Every church in the world. And then the culture can look at it and go, not only do you talk a lot about Jesus, but you're starting to act like Jesus a little bit. Because we like the way he acted. But please quit yelling at me. Cultural renewal is a third area. When you think about the businessmen in your church, when you think about those who have skills in your church, and you ask the question, what would it look like if the kingdom broke in, in the business that they run? One of the things that just drives me crazy is the CEO who's making all the cash, and then he volunteers at the homeless shelter one day a month. And that's like, because he's a Christian. And then he goes back to work, and he makes gobs of money so he can be rich. But what would it look like if he started to leverage all of that wealth and all of that influence and all of that for the kingdom? What if all the entry-level jobs were for people who are coming out of prison that need a second chance? What if he did that? What if part of being on his workforce was that we're gonna, you have to be involved in some kind of global initiative? So we're gonna give you extra weeks out of the year that aren't vacation, they're for you to go and build homes somewhere, for you and go and build a well somewhere. What if working for this guy was really peculiar because it wasn't just about this one bottom line called money, but there was this weird other bottom line that kept showing up and it was about love and how we treated each other and about making the world a more beautiful example of the kingdom. And what if you sat down over breakfast and you challenged him, inspired him, got into his imagination and started tweaking with it? What would happen? Don't answer the question. Let him answer the question. Because some of us are already going, well, I know what would happen, so I'm going to save the time. You don't know. Because the kingdom breaks in and it wrecks people in the most beautiful way. Cultural renewal. One of the things we did in this area this Christmas is, um, is rolled out this thing called the Advent Conspiracy, which you are welcome to steal, and I hope you'll join on. But, you know, looking at this, this story of Christmas and, and Jesus coming to the earth as a baby and leaving heaven and entering into poverty, and he, he uh, gives himself to us relationally, he gives up all of his wealth so that we can be rich. He um, is worshipped by the Magi. And when he shows up, the kingdom gets rattled. Herod is ticked and he kills all these babies because it critiques his empire. And then I just look at how we celebrate Christmas. How we give our kids iPods for Jesus. That the empire is being fueled by the way we celebrate Christmas. And it's not like the Magi showed up and said, well, look at the beautiful baby. Bob, I got you some frankincense. Really? Thank you. I got you myrrh. And like they didn't do that, right? They worshiped the baby with their stuff. So we just said, how could we enter into this story better so that we just don't do another year of like, remember the hour on Sunday where I'm reminded that I'm a Christian. And then I go out and head to the mall where I'm trampled by people so they can get the Xbox before me. And I'm reminded that I'm an animal that needs stuff. So we said, what if we quit? What if we said no to that? 
What if we gave ourselves away relationally, so we created this do-it-yourself workshop where you, we taught people how to give gifts that were relational and make stuff, and we have all these creative pr- people, so they made, they made stuff that was relational. And then we talked about what if we took the money that we don't spend, that we normally would, and we redistributed it. And so people came up with all these ideas of we adopted a middle school that was really poor, and we... Um, the children's ministry bought llamas for people in South America, and just all these crazy kind of ways of redistributing the money. The fear in all this, right, is that the kids are going to be bummed. I'm like, great, now you get the idea. You didn't, not when you were seven, but, you know, now that you don't care what you get for Christmas. But, but they actually jumped in on this. It was, it was really... And the beautiful thing, like for our house, after we opened all the gifts, and they were simple stuff and relational stuff, there was no brat factor afterwards. You know the brat factor where it's like, okay, that's it? What, that's it? And then we said, well, we're going to do that, and then we're going to take one offering with whatever you didn't spend. Don't go into debt. Save whatever you have left over, and then we're just going to redistribute that wealth. And on one Sunday, we took an offering, and we got $110,000. We had three other churches do it with us. One brought in 180000 Another one brought in 87000 And they were all checks, two, three hundred bucks. So the empire, they did the math, right? $450 billion a year we spend at Christmas. And what would it look like if the church did Christmas this way? What if billions of dollars were being redistributed? And then the empire that exists might come up and say, we should kill the baby. Because the baby is ruining, is threatening the empire. You could almost picture advertisers trying to get in on it and say, Jesus thinks it would be cool if he bought this, right? (laughs) I mean, how can we fight? And the answer is you can't fight. You can't fight it because he came to die. He gave it all up. He doesn't care if he's rich. You can't fight that with power and wealth and influence. You can't fight it. And so we're just asking questions of how can we bring the kingdom into the culture. And when the middle school that we adopt, we say, hey, we're ready to come. We have $20,000. How can we help your families? They're like, who? What? Like, why are you? People at work that watch their friends do it that say, can we do that as a company next year? but you're not Christians. Well, we just want to do what you're doing. That's a good way to meet the king, right? We're going to show you the baby. Letting your imaginations wild with this thing. Just, there is no how-to. Jesus didn't give us a how-to. He said, just think it up. Create it. There's no limits. There's no boundaries. Jerusalem council, don't drink blood, don't fornicate. That'll be good. Those are the rules. Okay, Okay. I think we got that one. We're going to try that. We're, everything else we can do. Global and local responsibility. This is the last one. This is just saying we have a local responsibility. If your church disappears tomorrow, will anybody know in your community? Will they miss you? Because you're not there. 
Will there be a village of people somewhere around the world that lost something because you disappeared? When the kingdom breaks in, it breaks in locally, but it spreads globally, and it is all his kingdom. It's all his. The last one is just that you have a kingdom destiny. The ultimate motivation and perspective that you must have to form your, vision, your visionary imagination is the that will not prevail and that this is the pearl of great price. This is the king of kings. And so even though Mondays are rough and even though there's tension everywhere, you need to hold tightly to the you as a church have a kingdom destiny. You're leading your people to it. You don't have to sell out for the here and the now. You can live for an empire that is breaking in. So I just want to close by encouraging you to be the church. Don't build it. Display the kingdom. That's your job. And if I was Satan right now, I would try to get you to think that your church fights with flesh and blood against flesh and blood. I would try to get you to lose your spiritual nation. I would try to deceive you into thinking this kingdom isn't really here. I would try to get you to think about Jesus apart from his kingdom. Just get all caught up in the details and not what he was really about. I would try to get you to think of your church as your kingdom. That's the place where you reign. I would try to get you to justify ignoring the values of the king and the kingdom for spiritual reasons. Because you're holding fast to your theology. I would try to get you to focus on building your churches instead of being the church. And if I could do that, and I was Satan, I'd win. Plain and simple, I'd win. And I could look at Jesus and say, yep, the gates of hell did win. I did prevail. Look at them. They're frustrated, they're tired. They walk in unbelief. They refuse to repent. They won't imagine. They don't care. They don't want to care. And they don't love anymore. I won. And so the question becomes, what will you say? Tonight, what will you say? What will you commit to? And I just end where we began in Matthew 4, 17, where Jesus says this, repent I hope that becomes a beautiful word for you. Repent. I hope it's full of hope and beauty and fresh starts. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. As you sit there in your seats, 
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just would ask that you would think about the, the people that live around your church. Think about the buildings. Think about the schools. Think about the articles that you've read in your local paper. Think about the crime. Think about the poverty. And then I want you to answer honestly to Jesus, do you care? Do you care? Is your church caring? Are they involved, are they active? And I want you to feel with all the grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit an invitation to repent to lead your people to repent, to not hear him speaking it with a bullhorn and anger, but in quiet, joyful anticipation of what you and your people will become. Repent. Just give you a few minutes to do that. Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the crucified and resurrected Lord of lords. You reign in a kingdom that has no end. And for some weird reason, you have allowed us to play a part in leading these little outposts of your kingdom all over the world. God, I just pray tonight that you would give us a level of authenticity with each other, with our spouses, with our elders, with our fellow leaders, to just, to just be honest, God, to just rest in your invitation to repent, to, to ask you to turn us around if we need that, and I, I know I need it, I think we all need it. God, that you would stir up our imaginations to believe, to picture, to imagine what your kingdom and your reign looks like in the zip codes that you've called us to serve you. And above all, God, I pray that we would hand you the reins back to your church and we would focus on believing and proclaiming and living instead of building and measuring and achieving and producing. Because God, we want you to be glorified as the one who built your church. 
who died and rose again and established this as your bride. And so God, would you come by your spirit in the lives of myself, my brothers, my sisters, and would you establish your kingdom in us tonight and allow us to lead people into displaying your kingdom and being your church. It's for your glory and your name's sake that we pray to our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Amen.